is once again my pleasure and honor to be able to stand before you to bring you another portion of God's Word. I know that if you're visiting for the first time and had not heard, you were expecting to see Brother Phil Sanders standing here and presenting the lesson. Uh, as has been announced, he is sick, uh, strep throat, I believe is what it is, and he's unable to be with us. And so I have been asked to uh, fill in, not to not to take his place, but to fill in. And the one thing that we do have in common is that uh, I will preach from God's Word. And so if you've come to hear God's Word, then I believe you'll be satisfied with what takes place here this evening. A few years ago, I heard about a congregation where they almost were not able to finish the worship assembly on a Sunday morning. That the preacher, as he was presenting his lesson, caused folks by his message to become uneasy at first, uncomfortable, and then there were those who just got downright angry, and there was a commotion that took place. You say, well, what? in the world that that man, what was he preaching on? What sort of heretic was in the pulpit? What sort of error was he involved in and that he was preaching that has caused the brethren to get so upset? He was presenting a lesson on worship and specifically talking about worshiping God in our singing. And in presenting the lesson, he pointed out that it was not just correct, okay for us to sing the way we were singing, and that is a cappella without the accompaniment of an instrument, but that it was a sin to use the mechanical instrument, and there were people who just, and got upset. Well, here's the question. Why is it that we practice what we practice? Is it a matter of convenience? Is it a matter of of what we like, what we'd rather have versus what others may like, what they'd rather have when it comes to our worship? We've got to understand the bottom line, Colossians 3 and verse 16, that everything we do in word or deed, we're to do all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now, what's that say? We are everything that we do, everything that we say is to be done based upon the permission, the authority of God. If someone were to say tonight as we walk out, why did you sing the way that you sang without an instrument? It should not be a matter of saying, well, we just like it. Brethren, if we can't open up our Bible and say, because the Bible says to do it this way, then we need to be afraid for ourselves. Because we've got to have God's permission for everything, not just in worship, but what we do at work, what we do at home, what we do out in the community, what we say. We've got to know that God approves, that we have his approval. And we go to his word to show we have his approval for what we're doing and what we're saying. In John chapter 4, Jesus, when he was talking to that woman at the well, that Samaritan woman, he made the statement that the hour is coming, John 4 and verse 23, the hour is coming and now is when 
those who worship God worship Him. The true worshipers worship Him in spirit and truth. John 23 and 24. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Now, if there's such a thing as true worship, that means there has to be something, brethren, such a thing as false worship. And so when someone says, well, you worship God your way, I worship God my way, they can worship God the way they want to worship God, as long as we're all worshiping the same God, what difference does it make? We'll just worship God. We're all worshiping. And Jesus said, we must to be a true worshiper. Worship in spirit and truth. So if there's such a thing as true worship, brethren, there's such a thing as worship that God says is not acceptable. It's false worship. What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Well, in John 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. There's the spirit part of it. The reason why most people worship, come together to worship, they'll tell you it's because of the fact that they love God. And so they're motivated, they have this emotion, they have this love to want to worship God, to worship Him in spirit. They're motivated by love. But to worship in truth, what does that mean? Well, Jesus said in John 8 verse 32, you shall know the truth. So truth is something that we can know. It's not something that we have to guess about. So when somebody says, you worship the way you want to, you worship the way you interpret it, you worship the way you understand it. No, Jesus didn't say Decide for yourself. He said, you shall know the truth. You won't have to wonder about it. You won't have to guess about it. You can know the truth that sets you free. John 17, verse 17, Jesus said in his prayer, sanctify them by thy truth. Well, what is that? Thy word is truth. So, Jesus said that we can know the truth. What is truth? God's word is truth. So Jesus said that we can know that when we read God's word that we're understanding what it is that God would have us to understand. That way we can know that when we worship God that we are worshiping God not only in spirit motivated because we love God but we can know that we're going through the right motions because we know the truth. We have his word. And so... I'd like to ask, why is it today that we have so many congregations that are beginning to see problems such as this? Why is it that we see congregations that are beginning to remove the Lord's name from it and just call themselves the Lebanon Church, the city wherever they're from? Or to say because the fact that, you know, they want to remove the Lord's name from it. Why is it that there are those that are even beginning to call themselves just a community church? And then within that church, they've loosened things up to where they say, well, does it really make any difference whether you use an instrument or not? Does it make any difference whether somebody's been baptized or not? Does it make any difference whether somebody's been immersed, sprinkled, or, or had water poured on them as baptism? Does it make any difference whether somebody understood that they were saved before or after their baptism? Does it really make any difference whether it's a man that's standing up and leading in the singing or speaking or, or serving the Lord's Supper? Does it really make any difference... And the question I have for you, brethren, is do you have the answer? 
You know what we practice. You know when we come together what we do, what we practice. But can you answer the question, why? I believe one of the reasons why, a big reason why we're having this problem is because of the fact that we've stopped preaching what we practice. And so we've got a generation or two of people who have come along who've not heard lessons about why we sing the way we sing. Why men are involved in the leadership. Why we baptize the way we baptize and for the purpose behind it. Why we attend on the first day of the week. We've stopped preaching these things, but we've continued to practice them. And so when people say, what difference does it make? We've got people that are going, I don't know. What difference does it make? We practiced here tonight singing just purely by our voices. Why did we do that? In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul wrote, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and moshing one another, and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now what did he say that we're supposed to do when we sing? He said that we are going to teach and admonish. Now, how is it that we're able to teach and admonish when we sing? Well, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 19, Paul said, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, what is it that we're doing when we speak? We teach and admonish. A mechanical instrument does not speak. A mechanical instrument does not teach or admonish. There is no communication between us and the mechanical instrument. And God says that which we're authorized to do, that which we're commanded to do, that we are to speak, that we are to communicate to each other when we sing. We teach, we admonish, we praise God by communicating a message. Now, sometimes I have brethren who go, well, you know, I don't sing very well. So when it comes time to sing in a worship, I don't sing. I just sit there and listen and, and, and I just worship by listening. No, you don't sit there and worship. You just sit there. Because, you see, the, com- the command to sing and how to sing is something that we're all commanded to do. God didn't say sing well. If it said sing well, that would eliminate me and probably a lot of you too. But he didn't say sing well. He just said sing. And that's something that we're all supposed to do. Now, some in the denominational world who have have wanted to be able to justify their use of mechanical instrument have gone and actually into word study here and said, well, wait a minute. To sing and make melody, that is to solo. That word right there means to pluck as in a harp or a bow of an, in a bow and arrow or a stringed instrument. And so there you have it. God is saying that we are to pluck strings when we sing. Yes, he said that. Sing and make melody, pluck strings. Now, understanding that it is a command that we're all supposed to be involved in, those that would say, well, see, there you go. It's all right to have an instrument. Not only is it all right, it's a command to have an instrument. That's what we've got to understand. Is if this says that it's okay, it's not just okay, it's a command. That means we have to have the stringed instrument. And not only must we have the stringed instrument, every one of us in here have to play one to be able to obey the command. 
Because every one of us are supposed to be singing and plucking those strings. Now, the thing is, God has explained to us, he's made it known to us what the instrument is. To sing and make melody, and here's the instrument, in your heart. We are to pluck figuratively those spiritual heart strings when we're singing to praises to God and communicating to one another. Now, brethren, we practice this, but we're having problems in some areas of the church where people are saying, what difference does it make? And they're even using the arguments that we've heard from the denomination world, saying things like, well, God didn't say not to use the instrument. Well, when God told Noah to build the ark, what did he tell him to do? He said, now, Noah, I want you to build an ark. And I don't want you to use pine. I don't want you to use elm. I don't want you to use oak. I don't want you to use cedar. I don't want you to use cherry. I don't want you to use... Is that what he did? He said, I want you to use gopher wood. Now, would it have been all right for Noah to say, you know, that gopher wood, the stands, you know, and gopher wood's getting further and further away from us, guys. And so we're going to have to we have to we have to load it up and bring it a lot from further and further away so that we can have this gopher wood. You know, there's a good strong stand of oak right over here. What would have happened if they decided they were going to use some oak to supplement some of the boat with oak? He had never gotten off the ground. Why? Because God told them what to use. He didn't tell them what not to use. He didn't have to. Because when God tells us what to use, that eliminates everything else. When it comes to singing, when it comes to having the authorization, and let's, let's make sure we drive that, that point home. Authorization. We've got to be able to say... We do this or we don't do this. We say this or we don't say this because of what the Bible says. It has nothing to do with what I think, feel, or believe. It has to do with what God's Word says. God has told us what to do. Well, when it comes to baptism, brethren, we practice taking people down into a pool of water and to water that's deep enough at least to immerse them in that water. Well, why is it that we do that? There are some folks that are beginning to say, well, you know, they say they've been baptized. They, well, how were you baptized? Well, in the church I was a part of, they poured the water on me and they called it baptism. Well, they sprinkled water on me and they called it baptism. Well, I was an adult when that happened. Well, I was an infant when that happened. But you know, I've had that. Well, you know, at least they've gone through what we understand the Bible says to be baptized and they've done that. They didn't have the same understanding. But, you know, is it really that big of a deal? You know? Why do we immerse? You see, if we don't know, that's one of the reasons why we've got problems right now. We know what we practice, but we, do we know why we practice it, brethren? In Romans chapter 6, verse 4, the Apostle Paul wrote, Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, Paul said that when we baptize somebody, we bury them. But let's just do a little just 
whether you believe what the Bible says or believe in the Bible or not, let's just leave the Bible alone and let's just go to the definition of the Greek word baptizo, where we get baptism. You don't have to believe in God. You don't have to believe in the Bible. You don't have to believe in any form of Christianity. Just to be honest with the definition of the Greek word, baptizo, which means to dip, to plunge, to cover up. If we're honest, that right there should settle what baptism is. It's going to be immersion. But then when we understand the definition of the word and we see how it's used, Paul's saying it's a burial, Colossians 2.12, we're buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And in John chapter 3, we read about how John the Baptist, he's baptizing in the Enon River. Why? Because there was much water there. You don't need much water if you're going to be pouring. You don't need much water if you're going to be sprinkling. But he's, pre, he's, he's out there baptizing where there is much water, where there is a river. Why? Because when you bury somebody, you've got to have more than a cup full of water. So brethren, let's not follow Jesus down to the riverside and run back up the bank for a glass. He's told us what to do. This is what we practice. It's what we need to make sure that we're preaching. We practice when we baptize brethren. That is for the remission of sins. You know, I I don't believe that I've ever witnessed a baptism by one of my brethren in which something along this line was not said. Because of the confession that you made that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, I'm now going to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for the remission of your sins. I've never witnessed a baptism by one of my brethren where something similar to that or word for word was was not said. Why is it that it's said? Because then there are those today that are say, beginning to question, okay, we know that the Bible says that we need to be baptized. I actually had a conversation with a man one time who said, who said well... And talking about the, the, the denomination that he belonged to, I said, so what you're telling me is that you can go to heaven without being baptized. You just can't be part of that church without being baptized. That you're, you can be saved without being baptized. But then he went ahead and said, yeah, that's what they teach, but I'm not going to bet my soul on it. He was honest enough to know what the, what the book said, but he wasn't honest enough to leave the denomination that preached and taught that. I was knocking doors one time down in Texas and came to a man's home. He was outside working along his fence line there. Introduced myself, said, we're going to have a gospel meeting. I'd like to invite you to come. And he goes, oh, yeah, Church of Christ. I know what you people believe. I said, what is that? And then he said, you believe that baptism is important, that you can't go to heaven without it. He says, you show me one scripture, just one scripture. You can't show me one scripture in the Bible that says that baptism has anything to do with being saved. Up my Bible, First Peter chapter three, verse twenty-one. 
There's an antitype which now saves us. Now, you hear that part? Whatever I'm about to say, God says, saves us. Namely, baptism. He said, I'm done talking to you. Well, why? All I did was, he said, there's not a verse. Show me one verse. And I showed it to him. When I showed him it was in the Bible, when it went against what he already understood what he believed, what he wanted to be true, when I showed him that what he believed and wanted to believe and wanted to practice was inconsistent with what the Bible said, he was done talking to me. Brethren, Jesus said Matthew, Mark chapter 16 and verse 16, that he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, on that day of Pentecost, when the first gospel sermon was preached. Now remember this. Jesus has told his apostles, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now these were the instructions. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who does not believe shall be condemned. And he told them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Comforter, of the Holy Spirit. And so they're there in, in, in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. You know the story and how they're able to speak the, in, in the different languages of the people there. And so the people gather around. They've heard this great sound of a mighty wind. And so they come together and then they hear these ignorant fishermen and men who are uneducated to be able to speak in these different languages. And they said, what in the world's going on? Going on? Are they drunk? Matter of fact, they were actually mocking when they said they're drunk on new wine, meaning they're drunk on that which is not even alcoholic, just making fun of them. But then Peter stands up. He says, no, they're not drunk as you suppose. It's just 9 o'clock in the morning. But what is happening here is what you have read in your own scriptures concerning the prophet Joel when he said that in the last days God would pour out his spirit on all flesh and then he began to preach this lesson about the coming of the Messiah and how Jesus was that Messiah and how they had taken him and they had killed him. And then when they'd heard this in verse 37, they said, what must we do? Now, what are they asking? They'd just been told that they killed God's son. What can we do to make that right? Now, let's understand something. Jesus had told his apostles, preach the gospel. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. This is the very first time they've ever obeyed that command. And they're talking to these, preaching to these people. And when these people have heard God's word, they are cutting their heart. And they are motivated to try to make some kind of change. They want to be right with God. And they say, what do we need to do to make this right with God? And what were they told to do? Well, what you need to do is just ask Jesus to come into your heart. Ask him to come into your heart. Let's say this sinner's prayer and you will be saved. Jesus told them, here's what I want you to do. Preach my gospel. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Now, sometimes people say, well, wait a minute there. He didn't say he who believes and is not baptized shall be condemned. He just said he who does not believe. So you see, really, salvation comes because they believe. Brethren, you don't baptize the unbeliever. There's no reason to say he who does not believe and is not, and is not baptized because, well, let's suppose they don't believe and you baptize them. 
Baptism is for believers. That's like saying, he who eats and digests his food shall live. But he who does not eat shall die. Oh, I'm not sure he's going to die because you didn't say and does not digest his food. Digestion is for people who have eaten food. Baptism is for people who believe. And so you've got this question that's being asked. What must we do to be right with God? The very first time somebody's going to hear the answer, what they need to do to be saved. What did Peter? What, what had Jesus told his apostles to do? He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. And so they asked the question, how can we be right? Verse 38 of Acts 2. Repent, every one of you, and be what? Baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the remission of your sins. Now, that's what we do. We immerse people in water. For what reason? For the remission of their sins. That's what we practice. That's what we say. Why is it that we're having, many, having problems in many congregations? Because they're not hearing it taught and preached anymore. A lot of pulpits, you don't have men who are standing there proclaiming boldly God's word. You don't have Bible class teachers who are continuing to teach it. And it may be because of the fact that we've got people who are saying, well, we all know that. Let's talk about something that will really help us, the church, because we already understand why we sing without a mechanical instrument. We already understand why we immerse. We already understand the purpose behind immersion. We don't have to keep talking about this. We're always, brethren, just one preacher from division or one eldership from apostasy in the congregation. Can you answer the question of why, why we practice the things that we practice? Somebody might say, well, you know, you preach like that. You know, that's condemning everybody else. No, I don't condemn anybody. I just proclaim God's word. You see, when somebody says, who are you to judge me? I'm nobody to judge you. Well, what you're saying is, if, if what you're saying is true, then that means that this is wrong and I'm wrong and my parents are wrong and this group is wrong. You're saying I'm wrong. I'm not saying anything. I'm just repeating what the judge has said. I'm nobody to judge. I'm just repeating the judgment of the judge. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 48, that we're going to be judged by his words. And then in verse 49, he went on to say, and the words that I am speaking are only the words that have been authorized by my father. So Jesus himself was not condemning anyone. He was just repeating what he had been told by his father. You know, it's just, it's just bad logic, brethren, to believe you can preach God's word and be wrong. That's just bad logic. And yet there are folks that hold that position. You know, it's as simple as this. You know, what, what, what is good logic? Well, let me see. I'm reminded of the farmer that said, you know, I've learned that one of my pigs, when one of my pigs gets sick and stays sick for several days, that he's got a better chance of recovering than one of my pigs that gets sick and just dies all at once. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's good logic. It makes sense. But the problem is, brethren, we want to try to finagle around to figure out how in the world it could mean something other than what God plainly said or decide it really doesn't make any difference. We need to preach what we practice because God's word is the authority. We meet on the first day of the week. 
Why do we come together on the first day of the week? Some folks will say, when does your church come together? Well, we do meet every first day of the week. There are other times too, but we're going to be coming together on the first day of the week. Well, why? Um, It's probably in the Bible somewhere. Do we know? In Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, it says that the brethren came together on the first day of the week to break bread, and Paul, going to leave tomorrow, spoke to them until midnight. Well, there was some preaching that took place. They came together. They were going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And so we also know in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, that on the first day of the week, the church, the brethren were commanded to lay by in store if they'd been prospered. And so there were two things that we know that took place on the first day of the week when the church was coming together. And how many, how many weeks have a first day? Every week. So how many times is the church supposed to come together each week? That first day of every week. Now some would say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say when it comes to partaking of the Lord's Supper, when it comes to even attendance, that he doesn't say every week. It's, it's funny, though, when you, the, the people, the groups that say, God doesn't say that we, we're supposed to partake of the Lord's Supper every week. We'll use the same language, the same words that Paul used in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 when it says on the first day of the week we're to lay by in store. And they'll say, but we're going to pass that plate every Sunday. Well, God didn't say give every first day of the week. He just said on the first day of the week. How come we understand it to mean every first day of the week when it comes to giving in those groups? But it doesn't necessarily mean that when it comes to the Lord's Supper. And so we don't necessarily need to partake of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. And some are even beginning to say that it doesn't make any difference whether the first day of the week or not. It could be just some special occasion in which, well, this is so special. And partaking of the Lord's Supper is a special occasion. So we want to mix a special occasion with the partaking of the Lord's Supper and make it an extra special occasion. Where's the authority? Who came up with that? Who decided it was the thing to do and that it would be pleasing to God? When it comes to giving on the first day of the week, brethren, why is it that we give? Well, it shows in one sense that we trust that God's going to keep His promise Matthew 6, verse 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus said we keep God first, and all the material things that we need, God will provide. Do we believe that? Well, one of the ways that we show God that we trust Him to do what He said He would do is to give back to Him in a portion that says, I'm dependent on you for me to be able to keep on keeping on. You know, when we, sometimes it's like, well, let me see, you got this much rent, got to pay this month, or my mortgage payment, and I got the insurance, and I got the cable bill, and I got the internet, and then we got to have something for gas, and we got to have something for electricity, and we just go all the way down through our, you know, then we're going to have to have groceries, and then we got entertainment, and you know, and a little bit for the savings, and the kids, and that, and we get out to the very bottom and say, oh, I got, 
I got this much left over. Well, out of, out of, uh, well, out of what I got left over, I, I can give God this much. What was the word I just used to describe what we're giving God? Leftovers. If we're putting God first, seeking Him first, how in the world does giving God, figuring out what I need to pay everything else first and decide now here's what I can give God and I will give God, how does saving Him to last put Him first? Just imagine you come to my home and I'm cooking out on the grill and it got some steaks just a sizzling there and my wife has baked some potatoes and got a tall salad there and some bread that she's made, homemade rolls and oh, it just all smells good and I bring it in and I sit on the table and the steaks are still just sizzling there and you know we're we're about ready to eat and I said, well, let's offer thanks, we offer thanks and then you start to, wait just a second, everybody back away from the table, open the door and say, here, dog, here! And my dog comes running there and jumps up on the table and just starts eating whatever the dog wants. And when the dog's through and he gets down and he runs back outside, I say, now we can eat. You'd say, Brother Kittle has lost his mind. Why? Because we don't give the dog first. The dog gets leftovers, and sometimes the dog doesn't even get the leftovers. It gets the leftover of the leftovers. If we can heat it up two or three times, I remember growing up, anything, anything that was leftover, it became some sort of, of what do you call it? <laughs> My mama, she'd melt cheese on it. <laughs> and it was a whole new dish. And so we just kept eating that food. And the dog... Finally, they get what nobody finds. No, I don't want to see that again. Okay, dog gets that. How are we putting God first and telling God that we trust Him to keep His promises when we're making sure that we're being realistic about all of our our expenses because it's not realistic to actually give to God sacrificially Trusting that he's going to keep... That's just not realistic. Well, brethren, that's what, that's what we're supposed to be practicing. I'm afraid that in many cases it's, we're not even practicing that. We do pass the basket on the first day of the week because we know that's what we've been commanded. We partake of the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week because it's the same language. And if it applies to giving, it applies to the Lord's Supper. We partake every first day of the week. History tells us that those people known as Christians, whether you believe in Christianity or not, or practice it, or believe in God, all you got to do is do the research and you'll find out that the people that were known as Christians in the first century, when they worshipped, they partook of the Lord's Supper, as it's referred to, every first day of the week. They sang without mechanical instruments. They gave every first day of the week. This is just historical information. It has nothing to do with what the Bible teaches to be able to know that's what was happening. It's what we practice. But are we preaching it, brethren? We give to do the Lord's work. 
we give to support the work of the Lord, and yet there are many folks out there that have decided that it's appropriate to have cake walks, cake sales, cookbook sales, car washes, yard sales. How does that fit the description of sacrificial giving? Think about it, brethren. We want to be able to take the gospel to the lost, and so what we'll do is we'll figure out a way to raise money to buy the material that we need to save the lost, but we're going to raise the money by selling something to the lost so that the lost can support the work of buying the information that's going to save the lost. Could you imagine? imagine? Just think about it. The brethren in the first century church saying, Now, this next Saturday we're going to have a chariot wash. When everybody come out and help wash chariots, we're raising money to help support Brother Paul. I say, we look, I say, yeah, they're like, that's, that's a funny, that sounds funny, yeah. Because we know it didn't happen. So why is it not funny when people say, let's raise money and wash cars? What's the difference? We have no authority to do that, brethren. The work of the Lord should be supported by the Lord's people. That's why when you see a program, on, the, on hear one on the radio or see one on the TV, where it is a work of the Lord's church, they will never say at the end of that broadcast, now for just nineteen ninety nine, if you'll send a love offering, we'll make sure that you have a manuscript of everything that's just taken place, or you'll get a DVD, and we'll also give you a handkerchief that the pastor has wiped his brow with, and it will be work miracles. You'll never hear anything that from a broadcast from the New Testament church. They'll always say, and if you'd like to have information about this broadcast, if you'd like to have a copy of this broadcast or manuscript, anything that we can do to assist you in helping you to learn and obey God's truth, it is absolutely free. It is be sent to you at our cost. Why? Because it's the church supporting the work of the church. That's what we practice, brethren. Oh, we're preaching it. We have men who lead in the worship. Why do we do that, brethren? We're having folks who begin to say things like, well, what's the difference between a sister standing up at the end of the aisle and passing the, the, the emblems in the Lord's Supper and sitting in the aisle and passing it down to a man? I mean, what's the difference? And is a woman really doing anything wrong when she stands up and and she's the one that's involved in making the announcements? I mean, announcements, they're not worship anyway. And and sister so-and-so, you know, she knows the Bible up and down and inside and out. and, And I just don't see that it would be a problem having somebody like her to teach the adult class. And we've got people who are beginning to say, well, what would be wrong with that? We say, well, we've never done that before. Yeah, I know we've never done that before. Why have we never done that? I don't know. Well, then maybe maybe there's not a good reason. It's what we practice, brethren. Why do we practice it? Well, we could go to Second Timothy chapter 2, or 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where Paul, in talking about 
the role of a woman, where you back up, where he talks about men who they're supposed to lift up their holy hands, that they're the ones to be involved in leading in prayer. And then he says in verse 11, 12, that the woman is to learn in silence that she's not to be over man, to usurp the authority of a man. And there are those that have tried to explain that away by saying, well, Paul was talking about a particular culture situation, how things were in the society in that day, and so it just had to do with that day and time, but that doesn't necessarily apply to us today. Well, I might be challenged to consider that if it weren't for the fact that when we get to verse 15, as we continue, first of all, as we continue there, Paul's saying, for or because... Here's the reason why a woman is not supposed to usurp the authority of a man. For what? Uh, Adam was formed first. What's that got to do with culture or society? He goes all the way back to the beginning when he created the first man and woman and he said, and here's the role. Man is to be the leader. He is to be the physical provider and leader and the spiritual leader. That doesn't mean that the woman is less important. It just means that that's not her responsibility. It's like saying, well, the vice president, he is not as, he's not as important a man as the president. You know, he's not worth as much as a, as a man, as a human being, because he's just the vice president. No. We all understand that just means he's got a different role, different responsibilities. And when it comes to the role of men and women, God has made it plain that there are certain things that are the the responsibility of just the man. That some things are just the responsibility of just the woman. And there are some responsibilities that overlap. Why is it that it's just the men that are involved in leading in the worship, participating in leading in the worship, because that is what God has authorized. He goes on in verse 15 and saying, For the woman will be saved in childbearing. Now you think about that. Some people will say that. Now I know. <laughs> I got a problem with that because not all women are going to get married. Not all women are going to have children. Not all women can have children. So she can't be saved unless she has babies. No, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the role. He's saying that the women will be saved by making sure that they fulfill the responsibility that God gave them to first make sure is taken care of, and that is the domestic duties. That's what this child bearing has to do with, the domestic duties. Now, don't go away from here saying, well... That preacher just said that I'm, I'm, I'm sinning and I'm going to hell because I work outside the home. No, I didn't say that. I am saying this. If I'm working outside the home, you are failing to fulfill your duties that God has said are your first priority, then you are putting your soul in jeopardy. And you men who allow that, permit that, and even encourage that are putting your souls in jeopardy by her not being able to fulfill her responsibilities. You see, she's already got a full-time job of those domestic duties. And so if anybody's going to take on a second full-time job to be able to provide, it ought to be the man. Oh, boy, now I've gone to meddling, hadn't I? But you see, 
when somebody would say, why would you say that, Brother Kidmore? Because I'm going to be held accountable for preaching the whole council. And I know that by saying this, I can say, because God authorizes it. That's the way God said it's supposed to be. Brother, never in history have we had such nice buildings and great location and influence so few. Never we had so many full-time workers and baptized so few. Never we had so many education directors who knew so little Bible. Never we've had so many youth ministers and lost so many youth. What is happening in the church? We're not preaching what we practice is a big part of it. Somebody will say, well, you're just gloom and doom. That's the kind of preacher you are. Brother Leroy Brownlow was accused of that one time. Brother Brownlow, will you preach? It's just gloom and doom. And he says, no, it's not. It's broom and boom. He said, what do you mean? He says, I am going to take the gospel broom and sweep this sectarian garbage out of here. And boom, the church is going to grow like it's supposed to. We used to be the fastest growing religious organization in the country, brethren. Now we're way down. Why is it? We haven't changed as a whole what we practice. But are we proclaiming God's word boldly? Like we're not ashamed of it. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 29. And praying for the apostles. Now Lord grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Why is it that a preacher might not want to speak God's word? The whole counsel. Well Jude tells us in Jude verse 11. That there are some in the way of teaching that which is not right, or not teaching everything that they should, but these false teachers, they've gone in the way of Cain. You remember Cain? What was his problem? His sacrifice was not pleasing to God. Why was his sacrifice not pleasing? Well, for some reason, he knew, because Abel, by faith, offered a sacrifice that was acceptable to God. And so since faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God, for able to be able to, to present a sacrifice that is pleasing to God by faith, and faith comes by hearing, that means he had to have known what it is that God expected him to do to make a sacrifice that would please him. And so, so Cain knew what he needed to do to please God, and for some reason Cain decided... I can do this. That ought to be all right. Whether it's a change of what it is God told him to offer or what he, or, or, or the, some would say he didn't give the first of his crops. I really don't believe that at all because all the way through we see God saying when it comes to sacrifice, it's always a blood sacrifice. But Cain, he's decided that he can do something other than what God has said to do. And so there are those that are compared to Cain by Jude. He says they've gone in the way of Cain. They've decided they can teach that it really doesn't matter. I know God said this, but it really doesn't matter. We can do it this way. Worship is worship. You do it your way. I'll do it my way. And we'll all end up at the same place. Yeah. If we do it, you do it your way and I do it my way, we will all end up at the same place. 
just not where we want to go. Jude goes on to say, and they run greedily in the error of Balaam. Remember Balaam? He was hired to curse God's people. And he couldn't curse God's people, but he wanted that money. And so he tells the king, enemy of the, of the Israelites, he says, I can't curse them, but I can tell you what you can do so that you can get their God upset with them. Now, why would he do that for money? Why is it that there would be some people who will preach what they preach, knowing that the people that are here, oh, I like that. You ever, you ever scratch the dog's belly? You know what they do. You know, they just roll. You start to scratch that dog. That dog wants you to scratch his belly. He'll roll over. And the next thing you know, when you scratch that belly, what, that leg starts going. There's some preachers out there that's got a whole congregation full of people shaking a leg because he's just scratching their belly, telling them what they want to hear. And they're all happy. Oh, he's the best preacher. Did you hear what he said? He just loves the Lord so much. He loves me so much. And we just love one another, one another so much. And, and they want to talk about how love just means doing what makes you feel good. And that makes you feel closer to the Lord. And he's getting paid. And he's running greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. But he stands there in front of the congregation with a Bible in his hand. And he smiles and he says, God loves you and here's what you need to do. I saw a t-shirt today, a man and woman both wearing in the motel there where it was eaten. And the t-shirt says, my pastor says... That I've been saved by God's grace. Saved by the power of God's grace. And I looked at my wife and I said, I wonder if they asked the pastor where it was in the Bible. Because you see, if that's all we can do is stand before God and God says, Why did you do this? Why did you practice this? Why did you believe this? Well, because the preacher stood there with the Bible in his hand and this is what he said. And he's going to say, Did you not have the same book? Why were you not looking in that book to make sure that what you were what you were hearing is what God would have you say? What I have said, Paul said in Second Timothy chapter two and verse fifteen: Be diligent. The old King James says, "Study to show yourself approved before God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed." When is a man ashamed of his work? When he either doesn't know what he's doing and he does allow a job, or he's just sloppy and he does allow a job. You know, when he doesn't do the best he can based upon the right instructions? Well, how is it that we're not going to be a workman for God that's not going to be ashamed by spending time in God's Word? Be diligent in studying God's Word. And when we do that, we're not going to be a workman that's going to be ashamed because why? We're going to be able to rightly divide the Word of God. Now, brethren, some say that we're going to lose respect if we preach what we practice. The Catholics preach what they practice. The Mormons preach what they practice. Why is it that they can do that and they don't lose respect for their organization, but we who are members of the Lord's Church can't preach what we practice because we're afraid we'll lose the respect of people? Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Brethren... <laughs> 
If we're going to be fishers of men and we use a sectarian bait, then what we catch is not going to be worth keeping. There's so many people that want to straddle the fence, that they want to travel the middle of the road. Brethren, the Lord said that those who are in the middle of the road, Revelation 3 and verse 16, he talks about the fact that they're lukewarm. What does he say about being lukewarm? He says, you make me want to vomit. You make me sick to my stomach. I'd rather be cold or hot, but lukewarm makes me want to throw up. Get out of the middle of the road. Brethren, the only thing in the middle of the road is yellow stripes, dead skunks, groundhogs. Get on one side or the other. People are obsessed with something new. Oh, can't we do something different? You know, we've been doing the same old, same old. Let me ask you, is something bad just because it's old? Old hearing? Old eyesight? Old preachers? Old elders? Old gospel? Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16 The prophet wrote, ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you'll find rest for your souls. Brethren, craving for the new is going to take us from truth to error, from right to wrong, from heaven to hell. We need to seek a religion that pleases God, not man. And the only way we can know that we're, that we're doing what God would have us to do that's going to please God is to know that we have His authority by knowing His Word. And the only way we can have churches that know that they know that they know the truth is that, brethren, we continue to proclaim the whole counsel. There are so many churches today that you can barely tell the difference between them being a church or a show on the strip down in Branson. Matter of fact, some of those shows on Sundays, they'll put out a sign out front that says, Worship with us today. And one fellow's got a sign out there that says he's the pastor so-and-so, and this is his seventh season in that theater to hold worship services. He didn't say it was his seventh year. It was his seventh season. Why are we not preaching what we practiced? We used to. What happened? Have we gotten discouraged? Do we believe God's promises that he'll give us the strength, that he'll not allow us to have to deal with anything that we can't handle with his help? Brethren, we ought to be singing onward, Christian soldiers. If you've been, if, if you've been tempted to raise the white flag of surrender, then you need to pull it down. Don't grow weary in doing good. God's word is right. God's word is true. Be proud to be one of his children, to be a Christian. Be proud of the name of Christian. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul said, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. I charge you to do this. What? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Brother Marshall Keeble said that being ready ready in season and out of season means preach it when they like it. 
And preach it when they don't like it. But preach it. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering. You know, brethren, there's a lot of people that they're glad to get up and just exhort. But sometimes to convince somebody of something. See, to convince somebody means that you're trying to help them to understand that they haven't accepted the truth. To convince somebody means you're presenting information to show them that what they are practicing or what they do believe, what they, what they do understand is incorrect. You're convincing them by God's authority. Sometimes that's not a pleasant circumstance. And for the preachers that are willing to do that, and for the brethren that are willing to do that, then you, I know you understand it when I say we like it when our stomach hurts. You think? Oh, yeah, I'm going to talk to this person, and I know they're going to disagree with me before I even open my mouth. And once I open my mouth, oh, boy, we're, you know, and I, I want to be able to help them to obey the truth and do what's right. But this isn't going to be pleasant. I'm looking forward to it. So why do we do it? Because we love God. We love the truth. We love the lost. So we're willing to convince. We're, able to re- we're, we're willing to rebuke. Rebuke means to correct someone. Somebody says, well, if you preach a lesson in which it tells, makes somebody feel like they're doing something wrong, well, then you just, there's something wrong with the way that you preach because nobody should go away feeling like they've been scolded. Well, it just depends. There are some sermons I preach and people walk out and the one person say, oh, brother Kidwell, you just, that lesson just uplifted me. Oh, I feel so built up. And the person behind them will come out and go, oh, you stepped all over my toes today. It was the same sermon I thought. I mean, what? How did one person feel like they got a spiritual spank and the other one felt like they were just being built up? It has to do with where we are in our relationship with the Lord and our understanding. And we just got to proclaim the truth. Brethren, we practice what's right. Do we know why we practice what's right? Are we sharing? Are we preaching and teaching what we practice? If you're here tonight and you're not part of the Lord's church, we want to give you an opportunity to become one. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son? We repent of the sin that's in your life. Come confess your faith in Jesus as the Son of God. Be baptized for the remission of your sins. That's what we practice here. We practice that because of the very reasons that we give you tonight, because that's the authority that we have from God. Nobody can point and say, hmm, that's wrong what you're doing there because when all we do is say, here's what the Bible says, so here's what we're going to do. Well, yeah, you can do it that way, but I don't see why we can't. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name by the authority of the Lord. When I stand before God one of these days, if he were to say to me, Tim, why did you say this when you preached? Why did you practice this when you preached? And for me to be able to say, Father, because you instructed in your book to do this and to say this, and for this reason, to hear him to say, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks or feels or says. I'm not preaching and you're not living to try to please others. If our heart is right, we're just trying to please God. Have you become one of God's children the way the Bible says to become one of God's children? As one of his children, have you sinned and fallen short of his glory? Brethren, everybody does. The real shame is not that you've sinned. The real shame would be that you allow some human emotion, whether it be fear or embarrassment or shame, some human emotion you allow to interfere with your willingness. And I say willingness because it's your decision to humble yourself in God's sight and to say, I've sinned. What keeps us from humbling ourselves? Well, what are my brethren going to think about me? They're going to think that um, you're not perfect and that you sinned and you fell down, but you're wanting to be perfect. And, and, and you can be perfect in the eyes of God because of the blood of Jesus, that when God sees you because of the blood that Jesus shed, your sins are continued to be cleansed. You continue to walk in the light as he's in the light. Remember last night we talked about the difference between being a sinner and a Christian who has sinned? Brethren, if you're a Christian and you consider yourself a sinner, then you're separated from God and you're lost. But if you're a Christian who has sinned, then you need to humble yourself. And the same blood that washed your sins away, you can continue. And, and that's just it. A Christian, they will humble themselves. A Christian who, who is striving to live the way God would have them to live, the one that hasn't gone from saint to sinner... They're going to do what John said in 1 John 1 and verse 9. If you confess your sins, talking to Christians, remember that. Many of the denominational people will point at this and say, well, see, here's what God says, that we're supposed to confess our sins, and God who's faithful and just will forgive us of our sins. So we pray to God. That's where the sinner's prayer comes from, that we're praying to God, we're confessing we have sin and we need his forgiveness. Well, the problem with this is John is writing this to Christians, people who have already been saved. And the people who are saved are instructed to confess their sins. Why? So that God will forgive them. Through the same blood that washed their sins away in baptism, the blood of Jesus will continue to cleanse us of our sin and we'll continue to be walking in the light as he's in the light. There's nothing more important, brethren, than going to heaven. What do you got going on in your life right now that's so important that it's it's standing between you and being ready to go to heaven tonight. There's nothing more important. Well, what are my brethren going to think? They're going to rejoice with the angels in heaven if their hearts are right. Well, you know, what are my children going to think? They're going to think, my daddy just showed me or my mama just showed me that for me to be right with God, I can't be too proud to admit when I'm wrong. You need to respond to the Lord's invitation. I encourage you to come now while we stand and sing this song.